Like Ryan said, um, my name's Liam. I'm the middle school director here on staff, and I am blessed to be able to share the word with you all today. Not only is diving into the word of God always a blessing, because the Bible's awesome, but um, he didn't give me like some really, really difficult psalm that was like hard to understand, and I'm like, what is God trying to say? He gave me probably one of the most beautiful things ever written, which is Psalms 23. So I'm stoked to be able to jump into this with you guys. So if you have your Bibles or your smartphones or wherever you're on, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 23, and we're going to be going through the whole thing. So let's do it. And then let's stand as we read the Word of God. All righty, so starting in verse 1 of Psalm 23, it opens a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You may be seated. So, before breaking down verse by verse these beautiful words that David wrote and the Lord has provided for us, I wanted to give a little bit of context for where the psalm is from um, and what exactly is the historical context around it. So most of the psalms, they start with a little title or a description, basically of who it was written by and sometimes what specific scenario the writer was in when he wrote it. Um, This psalm doesn't give us exactly what was going on in David's life at the time. It's simply titled, A Psalm of David. There's a lot of speculations um, as to when in David's life this was written. Some say it must have been earlier on in his life because of the influences of the shepherding. But most scholars say this was likely an older King David looking back on his younger years as a shepherd boy. Charles Spurgeon said in his commentary, I like to recall the fact that this psalm was written by David probably when he was a king. He had been a shepherd, and he was not ashamed of his former occupation. But regardless of when it was written, it's really, really clear that this was a personal psalm for David. Very much so. David spent, as I said, his early years as a shepherd boy for his father, Jesse. He knew firsthand the level of care and just work that is required to take care of a flock of sheep. And David is now using that experience from his life to describe his relationship with the Lord as the loving, caring God. And this psalm is birthed out of that place, out of David's personal experience with God. So with that being said, let's dive into verse 1. It opens, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So first, I want to point out something in the name that David calls God here. He calls him the Lord, which is a very common name that we hear in the Bible a lot. It's a common one because it's literally God's name. In the Bible, when you see the word Lord written in all caps, it is the name of God, the name Yahweh, given to Moses all the way back in Exodus. God told Moses that his name was, I am who I am. And that's what the word Lord is translated as there. Um, It was a symbol of God's eternal, all-powerful mightiness. He is the same yesterday, today, 
and forever. He has always been the holy king of the universe, and he always will be. He has no equal. And I bring that up because David is declaring that it's that God. It's that specific one, the Lord Almighty, the one who led Moses, who left his, led his people out of Egypt into the promised land, who did all the mighty things throughout the Bible before David. It's that God that is my shepherd. It's so personal. He says that the Lord is my shepherd. The God who is enthroned above everything and is so unlike me in so many different ways, um, in his holiness and his strength, that God is my shepherd. David makes it clear that God cares for him on an individual level, right? And you see, all throughout the entire Bible, God's referred to as a shepherd. This is a common theme. In Isaiah 40, 11, it says that God will tend his flock in his arm. He will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. This was speaking of God's plan to rescue Israel through the Messiah. And Jesus, when the New Testament rolls around, picks up on that. Um, he says this in John 10, 14 and 16. He writes that, or he says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. You see, through Jesus, God became not only a shepherd to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles as well. And that's an amazing truth that we should hold on to, but David is not content to leave it at a hypothetical or a widespread truth. It's not enough for him to say that God's the shepherd of all the people together. That's amazing too, but rather he takes it to a personal place. He doesn't say that God is our shepherd, speaking of his, his role over Israel, um, no, David understood that God was his shepherd personally. This is so important for us as Christians to grasp. I can't overstate how important this is. God is not merely the leader over the global church or even the local church of CCSE or even just over the pastors here on staff. No, he must become your shepherd individually and mine as well, right? There has to be a point in all of our lives where our relationship with God becomes our own. I've been a Christian for most of my life, pretty much as long as I can remember. I grew up in a Christian family. Um, we went to church often. We were heavily involved in ministry growing up. Uh, my dad was a pastor here on staff for many years. Uh, but there was a point in my life when I realized that I couldn't continue to scoot by on my parents' faith, right? I couldn't just inherit it from my dad and say, yeah, dad, you follow God. I'm just going to hang back here and everything will be okay. It was clear that the Lord wanted me, me as the individual. He wanted to lead Liam where he wanted to lead Liam, and I had to follow him. Um, I had to make it personal. God desires to lead each of us through every decision we make, not just what we do on Sundays and Wednesday nights, not just through the things that our church does globally or locally even, but to me, the individual. And as the rest of the psalm goes on to say, he does this because he loves us and desires to care for us. So let's look at the last half of verse 1. It opens again, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Because God is that personal, loving caregiver in our lives, David says that he shall not want. The meaning here is twofold, really. First, 
David's saying that when God is caring for him, he doesn't lack anything. And as a former shepherd, David knew that sheep were needy. But he also knew that it was the shepherd's responsibility to care for all of the sheep's needs. Not just some of them, but all of them. The sheep were pretty stupid on their own, and they needed him to take care of them. The shepherd fed the sheep, led them to water, sheared them so they wouldn't get overgrown and, like, super bushy, um, protected them from predators and parasites. He cleaned them, gathered them to himself. On and on the responsibilities went for David as a shepherd boy. Everything that they could possibly need had to be thought of and dealt with by the shepherd. We as people don't just have any old shepherd, but the most good and loving shepherd there could ever be. It's not a mere human being who's leading us and shepherding our lives. It's God himself. And David understands that he doesn't need anything apart from what the Lord will provide for him. We have nothing to fear or worry about. And that's why translations like the New Living say, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. If he truly is our shepherd and we are following him, he will lead us right to where our needs are met. No questions asked. We only need to follow him where he leads us. Jesus restates this later on in the New Testament in um, the Sermon on the Mount. He says this in Matthew 6, 31 through 33. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. But I also want to point out that for David, this isn't just a suggestion. This isn't just something he's saying like, this is a good idea for me that I find everything I need in the Lord. No, for David, it's a command, right? Look at how he words this. He doesn't say, I'm going to try and not want other things. He says it as a command, I shall not want. I shall not. David knew that he, as a human being, was prone to search for satisfaction and fulfillment elsewhere, away from the Lord in the things of this world, rather than within God. To prevent this, he commands himself to stay satisfied with what he has found within God exclusively. He makes the active choice. It's a choice that has to be actively made to find contentment within the Lord and to search nowhere else for it. He knows, he's like, this is where I need to be, and I'm not going to spend my time searching elsewhere for satisfaction. The Lord gives me all those things. Matthew Henry wrote this in his commentary on Psalms 23. He said, more is, impl is implied than is expressed. Not only I shall not want, but I shall be supplied with whatever I need. And if I have not everything I desire, I may conclude it is either not fit for me or not good for me, or I shall have it in good time. We as believers need to have this same attitude, um, an attitude of contentment in what the Lord has given us currently because Jesus promised us complete and total safety and satisfaction within himself. Those things that the world offers that we think we find pleasure in quickly fade. They're like mirages. They're not real. When you go to find them, suddenly you're left dry and empty and sad. And you're like, where did I go wrong? It's because the Lord is already offering you everything you could ever need within himself. So let's move on to verse 2. Verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. This is a beautiful image here. Um, just as a shepherd leads his sheep to a nice, luscious green valley for rest, 
God leads us as his sheep to places where we can rest. He leads them beside quiet waters where our thirst is quenched and where we finally have rest. See, David would have understood that it's incredibly difficult. I didn't know this before I started doing research, but apparently it's incredibly difficult to get sheep to rest. In Philip Keller's book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, um, he talks about all the conditions that have to be met for a sheep to finally start resting. He says that because they're timid, they will not lie down if they're afraid. And because they're social animals, they will not lie down if there's friction among the sheep. If flies or parasites trouble them, they will not lie down. Finally, if sheep are anxious about food or hungry, they will not lie down. Rest comes because the shepherd has dealt with fear, friction, flies, and famine. And I think that's why David uses such forceful language to describe rest. It kind of seems weird when you read it. He doesn't say that God lets us rest or gives us the option to. Rather, he says, no, God makes me lie down in green pastures. He makes us rest. I think it's because we as people are inherently anxious and restless. Especially today in American culture where we love to be self-sufficient. It's like one of the most highly praised qualities in a person in America. Our culture worships busyness. Phrases like, I'll sleep when I'm dead, or you just got to hustle if you want to make it in the world. Those are the things that are like, that's what makes a good person in today's culture. Um, they've been the motto of America for decades, right? And it's important for us to work hard as believers, but God also has to lead us into seasons of rest because he knows that we need it, even if we feel like we don't. And if you think about it, the Lord has always had to command people to rest, right? In the Old Testament, God commanded the people of Israel to follow the Sabbath. Once a week, they had to cease from all work completely. No questions, right? They had to do it. The day not only gave them a break, but it allowed the people of Israel to reflect on God's goodness to them. The Sabbath was not optional. Um, punishment was extremely severe. It was death if you did not follow the Sabbath. The Mosaic Law makes that clear. Under the New Covenant, through Jesus, we're no longer commanded to strictly follow the exact day of the Sabbath, but we are told to rest completely, fully, in Christ, who has become our Sabbath rest. In Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Paul says that we should be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. For Paul, those verses are not an option, and they shouldn't be to us either, because they're a command. This is what we're supposed to do, right? God calls us to rest, and to not listen to him when he tells us to do it is disobedience, and that's sin. I think as a result of this, there are moments in life where God forces us down and tells us to, like, chill out. I think David knew this well, right? Whether that be through life circumstance or just spiritual exhaustion, like, I can't do this anymore. And I know this firsthand because full admission, guys, this point hits home for me because I'm a workaholic. It's true. I like, I really, like when I'm busy and I'm doing stuff, I feel good because I'm accomplishing things. Um, I feel useful. So when I'm just sitting down and I have free time, I feel useless and like a waste of space, to be totally honest with you. And that's not healthy, um, but I become restless and anxious and there have been moments where God leads me to a place of rest in my life, sometimes forcibly. When COVID hit, it was a lockdown pretty much immediately. Uh, I had a month time off of my job at Starbucks. Everything was closed. I couldn't really go anywhere. 
Um, life in general, super quiet. And at first I hated it. I was just on edge all the time. I'm like, I got to do something. And, um, but I believe God put me there on purpose to allow me a space to slow down, read his word, seek his face. I wrote this in my journal during that time of my life. I said, I think God has put me in this place in order to show me what to surrender. In this empty state where nothing is on my plate, he is filling my soul with his desires. One of the main problems of the believer is that we fill every cranny of our lives with stuff, not just our time, but also our hearts and minds. With no empty space, there is no room to be filled. It's like how air will never rush to fill a pressurized space. It will always go from a place of higher pressure to lower pressure. I'm a science nerd, guys. I'm sorry. God has released all that pressure in my soul. The vacuum-sealed chamber that contained all of my fear, doubt, anxiety, every other negative emotion has now been breached. And with everything equalized, there's nowhere to run, and my spirit is being settled, and the Holy Spirit is now filling that void. A lesson I think I learned then that I struggle to remember even now is that to properly follow God fully and well, I need to rest. And the lockdown was a time when God made me lie down and forced me to do so against my will in some senses. Not a, I had to just sit and be and be satisfied, not in the work that I did, not in what I accomplished, but simply in my identity as a child of God. That was it. That was all I had. And that was all I needed. And it's there that I found true satisfaction and my spiritual needs were met. My thirst was quenched. And I think all of us as believers need that. And our shepherd is faithful to lead us to those times in our lives. And it's our job to be flexible and willing to sit down for a little bit and say, okay, God, you've led me here. This is where I'm at. So moving on, verse three, David says that he restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So let's focus on that first part. David says that he restores my soul. And I think this gives light to why God guides us into rest and towards quiet waters. He does it not just because he cares about our physical bodies, which he does, but our souls. Pastor David, point, David Guzik points out in his commentary that the Hebrew word translated as restore here also has the connotation of restoring something that was lost. It has the connotation almost of repenting from sin, possibly. And I think that reflects God's desire for us as his sheep. Because all throughout the Bible, we see that God cares way more about what's inside our hearts than the external, right? When Jesus came, his primary mission was not to heal physically, although he did do that where he went, but it was to heal the spiritually sick and offer them a true relationship with himself. That's no clearer scene, I think, than in the story of the paralytic who was lowered through the roof. You guys probably know the story, right? Jesus is preaching in a house, um, and suddenly through the top of the roof, a paralyzed man is lowered down by his friends, and he's sitting there at Jesus' feet. And Jesus, having all power and authority to heal the man, first says this to him. He says, friend, your sins are forgiven you. And it was only to prove that he had authority to forgive sins that he even healed the guy, right? It's not because Jesus didn't care about the, the issues that were facing him, because he did, but rather the more important thing, the best thing, is that he was saved from his sin and his heart and soul were healed, right? That was Jesus' purpose on earth, and that's still his mission today, 
to heal our souls from sin and everything else that afflicts us, right? And it's comforting to know for us as believers that Jesus' rest, it, that the rest that he provides, and it's not skin deep. It doesn't just make us physically rested and feel like we can go back to do work again, but it penetrates deep into the core of our longings and desires and cleanses us of sin that binds us and sets us free. That's why in Matthew 11, 28 and 29, Jesus says this famous line, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. That's what Jesus is after. He's after to give us rest for our souls. And David continues in verse 3. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You see, even though God is the one guiding us and providing for our needs, and he's leading us into places, he does care about how we live our lives and the things we do. He cares not because he wants to suck the fun out of your lives and make it so your life is uptight and unfree, but because he wants us to have restored souls and to have a relationship with him. God knows and understands completely just how damaging sin really is. It separates us from God, leads us into destructive life habits, and when let completely loose in our lives, leads to death. James 1.15 says, Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. God hates sin. He doesn't hate the sinner, but he hates sin because of what it does to our relationship with him and others and the consequences it has on our lives. In fact, he hates it so much that he sent his son to free us from it. Through the blood of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit, we can now live holy lives, truly holy lives that are marked by godly living. And God is not content to leave us the same way, to do whatever we want. Rather, he wants to purify us and make us holy. He wants to show us how to live our lives in a Christ-like way. And God does all of this, not just because he cares about us, but like verse 3 says, he does it for his name's sake. That's the beautiful thing about the Christian life is that when we follow God's leading in our lives, truly, God is glorified. When we follow God's leading in our lives, he is glorified in us. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. When we became Christians, we represent Christ wherever we go. We're ambassadors for him. We're representatives of him. When people look at us, they should see a representation of what Jesus is like. Now, by no means am I saying that we're perfect at this. Obviously, I would be the first to tell you that I'm far from perfect. I fall short. But when our lives are oriented towards God, and when we truly seek to obey him in all that we do, and to lead, follow him wherever he would lead us, we point towards Jesus. Naturally, we don't even have to try, because it's the result of truly following God. It's not something that has to be mustered up, it's not something that has to be manufactured by us, but it comes from our willingness to let the Holy Spirit work in his life, in our life. And all that's required on our part is simply to obey the Lord and follow him wherever he leads us and to live in humility. And it's what a blessing to know that our lives 
can and are used by God to point others to Jesus. That's a beautiful thing. Verse four, David moves on. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So this is the first kind of tinge of darkness within this psalm, which up to this point has been filled with beautiful imagery. But it's still filled with the hope of God in the midst of difficult circumstances. So David does not exactly say what he means by valley of the shadow of death. Um, It seems to be a very poetic way of talking about intense trial or experiences. um, But we're not really sure. But notice that he opens saying, even though I walk through the valley does not say if I find myself in the valley or if at some point in life I may or may not be there. It, for David, he takes it as a given that one day he will be here or he currently is right now. Regardless, he accepts it as a reality that points in his life he will be in the valley of the shadow of death. And I think we should take it as a given too because Jesus promised us that, when we go, that as we go through life, we're going to go through hard things. He said this to his disciples in John 16, 33. He said, in the world, you have tribulation. That's just the fact that he's dropping there. He says, you're going to have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. But when David finds himself in the worst situation possible, with death literally looming overhead, he isn't afraid. Why? Because God is with him. He's presently with him. And it's important for us to know as believers that just because things are difficult in life does not mean that God has abandoned us or left us, right? Quite the contrary, actually. In fact, oftentimes God takes us into those tough situations for a purpose and for a reason. Just like our shepherd knows that there are times in life that we need rest and peace and quiet, there are also times that we need the tough hard trials of life to truly shape us and mold us more and more into the image of Jesus. And he's faithful to lead us into times of rest and into times of struggle in his perfect timing. We truly don't lack anything, right? One of my favorite passages in all of scripture is James 1, 2 through 4, where James writes, "'Consider it all joy, my brethren, "'when you encounter various trials, "'knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, both James and David understand that the shepherd works in such a beautiful way, in such an uncomprehensibly beautiful way, that even what seems evil and painful is used for good in our lives. It's all part of the redemptive work of Jesus who desires to use all things perfectly for our lives, right? And we can take comfort in the fact that when we follow God, we are where we are for a reason. God's hand hasn't slipped off the steering wheel all of a sudden and we're in a ditch that we didn't belong in. That's not the reality. No, God has led us somewhere for a purpose and a reason. Ecclesiastes 3.1 says that there is an appointed time for everything, not just good things, not just for laughing, but also for mourning. Not just for dancing, but also for weeping. You see, Solomon, when he wrote that, I think he understood well that everything in his life was planned for a purpose. He understood that God's hand hadn't suddenly slipped off the steering wheel. 
No matter what specific scenario you find yourself in at any point in your life or today, if you are a believer in God, he has brought you here for a specific reason. Let's look at that last part of verse four. He says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So there's some debate, and I was a little curious when I was doing some research on whether or not these are two separate instruments that David's talking about, a rod and a staff, or they're just one and they're used for different purposes. Regardless of whether it's two or one, um, they're used for correction of the sheep, for one, as well as for defense of the sheep. So they're used to both fend off predators um, and direct the sheep to to where they should go. David himself protected his sheep um, from a lion and a bear in his past. So he understands that sometimes you got to defend the sheep because predators are going to come in, right? And he took comfort in knowing that God would protect him from all his enemies with his rod and his staff. But what I find interesting is that the rod and the staff are also used to guide and direct the sheep, not just to fend off the enemies, not just to protect the sheep from the things that would come against it, but in a way from the sheep itself and from it being so stupid as to wander off into the wrong way, right? David had a peace in the fact that God would correct him if he was going the wrong way or was losing his way, drifting away from the shepherd's path. You see, I think we as people, even as believers, we often view correction as a bad thing, right? We don't like it, but we shouldn't do that. Because it's an awesome thing that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. Because it tells me, the believer, that, hey, you're falling off course. You're not representing Christ well. You need to go to him, repent, and find forgiveness for your sin. That's awesome. That's a great thing. Proverbs 15.5 says, A fool rejects his father's discipline, but he who regards reproof is sensible. If God simply let me wander wherever my heart desired and I just got to do whatever I wanted with no conviction from the Holy Spirit, that is a scary thought because I would probably wander far, far away, right? I know myself and my flesh. Without the Lord, I'm just going to wander off. That's why um, in Jude, in the verse that Doug quotes up here all the time, it says that he is able to keep us from stumbling, right? Because we need the Lord's help to do that. So David takes comfort in the fact that when I'm getting off track, that the shepherd's going to hook me back and bring me back to where I need to be. Let's continue. Verse 5. David says that you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. So now the analogy kind of switches away from God being our shepherd to God being a loving host. When we see that God being the host is just lavishing and lavishing gifts upon David, right? As Guzik pointed out in his commentary, this isn't just like a box lunch or like a little lunchable. This is like a feast, right? There's a huge table. It's so much food that it needs an entire table. More than that, David's head was anointed with oil. And that was a common tradition in Israel is that when you welcomed a guest into your home, it was a refreshing thing to have oil poured over your head because it smelled nice, it was cooling, if it was hot outside... God is sparing no expense when he's hosting David. Finally, the Lord is pouring into his cup to overflowing. And that just really brings the point home for me, which is like, he doesn't just fill it to the brim and then say, okay, David, that's what you get, $3 for refills. No, it's not like that, right? It's, it's overflowing. It's way more than I could ever need. God not only meets our needs, but he exceeds them. Because God loves to lavish gifts upon his children. He really does. 
But notice that this doesn't occur in some faraway place. David's not picked up by eagles and taken away from the valley of shadow of death that he was just in. No, but it's right smack dab in the middle of his enemies, all around. And at first, the whole idea just seems insane to me. It's like, why in the world are you eating with your enemies around you? Grab a roll and get out of there. Like, go, right? But that's not the case with God, right? Because with God as our shepherd, David has no reason to fear whatsoever. And he can tuck the napkin in his shirt and sit there and enjoy a peaceful meal. I like what Charles Spurgeon said in his commentary. He said, when a soldier is in the presence of his enemies, if he eats at all, he snatches a hasty meal, and away he hastens to the fight. But observe, thou preparest a table, just as a servant does when she unfolds the damask cloth and displays the ornaments of the feast on an ordinary, peaceful occasion. Nothing is hurried, there is no confusion, no disturbance, the enemy is at the door, and yet God prepares a table, and the Christian sits down and eats as if everything were in perfect peace. We as believers are able to feel and accept the blessings of God in the here and now, regardless of what the situation is. We don't have to wait for God to lead us to those peaceful meadows that were described earlier in the psalm. We can feel the blessings of the Lord here and now, wherever we're at, right? It isn't limited to the time of rest. It can be here and now. It follows David right into the valley of the shadow of death. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be plucked out of our difficult situations, right? Because the enemies are still all around David, right? But rather than that, God still loves and is gracious to us in those moments. And that is the peace of God, right? Not peace that takes us out of the challenges of life that are being used by the Lord for good, but peace that surpasses those and says, hey, I've got you and you're all right. You can trust me. You can sit down and have a meal with me now, even though it doesn't make sense. He's going to provide all our needs, even in the midst of the battle. So finally, let's close with verse 6. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I love how David starts verse 6. He says, surely. The word surely there is just great. It, it, it's awesome. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. He is convinced that the goodness of God will always follow him, no matter what, because the Lord is the good shepherd that never changes. So why would I have any reason to think that it's going to go away, right? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And David's taken that to the bank because he knows that it's true and real. Now remember, David goes through a lot of junk in his life, regardless of when he wrote this, possibly after, possibly before, but he's on the run from Saul for years and years. And then even after becoming king of Israel, he has family issues, political problems in the kingdom, wars to deal with, on and on and on, right? So how in the world could he say that? Because God's goodness is the kind that we just talked about that surpasses circumstance. No matter what happened to David, no matter what was going to come, even if his hardest experiences were still ahead of him, he was confident that his shepherd would guide him and there would be a seat for him at the table always, regardless of what hit him. All the other securities in life, they might fade away, right? The securities that the world gives us or that our government gives us or even possibly that our friends could give us. But the Lord, his will not fade away. And finally, David ends with this beautiful phrase, 
and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Forever. What a beautiful note to close on. The security of God doesn't end even at death. David is convinced, and he's right, that he will be with the Lord not only in his time on earth, but in death as well. And we too can have that same security, right? If we are found in Christ, God has bought us with his blood. We have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, and after death, we will be in Christ, with Christ in glory forever. That truth is the anchor of the Christian life, because no matter what happens, even if I die unexpectedly, I can have peace and comfort. The stability of Jesus and his unchanging character. So in closing, um, I don't know where you all are at today in your walk. I know that the, our walk with the Lord is intimately personal, as I mentioned, so you could be at any point. Um, perhaps God has led you to a time of rest and peace in your life, and you're doing quite well. Um, but maybe you found yourself in the valley of shadow of death, feeling like you're going to die, and you just are desperately holding on to all that God's giving you. Like, please, Lord, give me something. I'm desperate. You might even feel far away from God and are praying that he would restore your soul and guide you back to the path of righteousness. But no matter where you are in your walk, no matter what you're going through or what you're facing, I know this, the Lord is your good shepherd. He's yours. He's not just the church's shepherd. He's not just David's shepherd. He's yours personally. And if you are his, he will guide you exactly to where you need to be. And I pray that all of us would learn to be humble and more willing to follow God wherever he would take us in pure faith and trust, saying, God, I believe you. I believe that you have my best intentions in mind. And whatever I think should be happening, that's probably not what's best. I trust you. You know, in Isaiah, it talks about how the Lord's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts because they're higher than our ways and they're higher than our thoughts. And I think this psalm and that thought from Isaiah, they mesh really well. But possibly, you might not even know the Lord. I, there are some of you that I haven't really met here tonight um, and I haven't talked to in depth. And for those of you watching online, perhaps you don't even know the Lord and you don't have a personal relationship with him. But I do know this about you too, that Jesus loves you desperately. And I'm not saying that as a Christian platitude just to make you feel good. It's because it's true and it's real. Jesus is desperately in love with you and he wants to lead you more than anything in the world. He wants to be your shepherd. Not so that he can suck the fun out of your life, not so that he can make you have to follow a bunch of boring rules, but rather because he wants to guide you into what is good and pure and holy and so that he can have a relationship with you. So I pray that as we go forward from tonight that we can have confidence that God is leading us and that we can be more humble to his leading tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for tonight. Lord, I thank you for your ever-present leading in our lives. I know that we are sheep and often we get lost and go astray and I can't even imagine where we'd be without you. Thank you, God, for your presence in our lives. I pray that as we go from this place, that our hearts would be malleable, that we'd be moldable, that we wouldn't be hard-hearted saying, no, Lord, I want my way, but that we would fully surrender saying, Lord, you have my best interests in mind, not me who wants foolish things and stupid things, but Lord, that we would trust you to guide us where we should be. Thank you, Lord, for all the things you do in our life, for guiding us to exactly where we need to be. 
Thank you for everything you do, both what we see and understand and what we don't see and what we don't understand. We love you, and we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.